to all the people who are fighting for the broken, all the people who keep holding on to love, all the people who are reaching for the lonely, keep changing the world, thanks Mike's chair. We here at Solutions to Violence, along with our guest today, Dr. Phil Giddens from World Beyond War and Allison Sutherland from Rotary Action Group for Peace, are also interested in changing the world. Folks, you are listening to Solution to Balance, and we are so glad you are joining us here on Forward Radio, WFMP LP 106.5 FM. Solution to Balance is a program of and sponsored by Forward Radio. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational program. Views expressed are those of the speakers and non-station. If you'd like to share your views, you may contact us by sending us an email to solutiontobalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our guest today is Dr. Phil Giddens and Allison Sutherland. Welcome, Dr. Giddens and Allison Sutherland to Solutions to Violence. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's wonderful to be here with you. We'll share a little bit about Dr. Giddens. He is the World Beyond Wars Educational Director and is a Peace Ambassador for the Institute for Economics and Peace. He has 15 plus years programming, analysis, and leadership experience in the areas of peace, education, and youth. He has particular expertise in context-specific approaches to peace programming, peace-building education, and youth inclusion in research and action. To date, he has lived, worked, and traveled in over 50 countries across six continents, taught in schools, colleges, and universities in eight countries, and led experiential training and training of trainers for hundreds of individuals on peace and conflict processes. His work includes youth in prison consultation for public and non-profit organizations on peace education and is a certified neuro-linguistic programming practitioner and counselor. Allison Sutherland is a Rotarian peace builder and serves on the board of Rotarian Action Group for Peace at Rotary International in Cardiff, Wales of the United Kingdom. Allison is the past president of Cardiff Bay Rotary and district peace officer. She has a degree from Durham University in theology and ministry and until four years ago spent 11 years as grassroots level in East Africa. Allison founded an NGO offering counseling, testing, management and treatment, home-based care, awareness and prevention seminars, feeding, microfinance, catch-up tool for organs and training. On her return to UK, she has pioneered the Southern Wales Peace Citizen Program based on the lives of 13 Nobel Peace Laureates. It provides the children and young people opportunities to gain skills in leadership, critical thinking, peace, and conflict resolution. The program has been delivered to schools, colleges, universities and international places of education. Welcome again, Dr. Giddens and Allison. Thank you so much. Dr. Giddens, we would like to learn more about your work and what you're doing with the World Beyond War. Could you brief us on the organization World Beyond War and the work you're doing with this organization? Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, with, with pleasure. So thank you so much. The World Beyond War was co-founded in 2014. Um, and since then, we've had a whole lot of progress made in terms of our focus. We're a global nonviolent movement to end war and establish a just and sustainable peace. We try and differentiate ourselves from other organizations working in the peace sphere in two ways. So one is that we're global in scope. So we're fortunate to work with, learn from and support wonderful people on the ground um, and we have a hundred and people from 193 countries which have signed our peace pledge which is really the 
you know, a good starting point for engaging with us in the work. The other way in which we try and differentiate ourselves from other people in the peace building field is that we are against the war system. So the institution of war. So not just bombs that are dropped in faraway countries and often in the in the global south, but against the the whole institution of war. So what we mean by that is is that the the things that happen before, during, and after war. So before would be the preparation of war. So this links to ideas of militarization and um, armament and things like this, uh, which often take place in global north countries, particularly. I'm from the UK. We're very much a culprit. Um, the United States are very, very, very much a culprit with regards to this in, in investing in what we call the war machine. Now we spend two trillion is spent each year on preparing for war. Two trillion. Half of that is spent down to the US, which spends up to one trillion. Uh, so that's the before part. Then you've got the during part, which is when the bombs are dropped. So if you look around, there's, you know, Ukraine, Russia, etc., is one example of the immediacy of war. But then you've got what happens after war, after the bombs are dropped and the remnants of war. So to this day, we still see the remnants of, you know, nuclear weapons, chemical weapons and others, etc., which are playing out today in, in devastating ways. So that's a little bit about kind of the work that we do. So the question is, well, how do we do that? And one way of thinking about our work is that our work is divided into two areas, education and action. Under the education part is a whole host of materials, resources, um, etc., that, that, that we have to try and debunk the myths of war and educate people around more productive, more non-violent alternatives. So so uh, we have online courses. If you haven't taken them, I recommend taking them. We run four this year, which is six weeks online. We have fact sheets, podcasts. We have our books. We have one book in particular, which is called The Peace Almanac, which is a wonderful resource for schools, universities, community groups. What it does is that it's a book that lays out 365 days a year that says, oh, did you know in 1947 on this day, there was a movement for peace as a way of kind of counteracting the over-focus on celebrating the heroes of war. And we also have another great resource called Mapping Militarism, which is an online virtual mapping system to, to map out what countries are doing in relation to war and militarism. So you can hover over the map and say, oh, let's have a look what US are doing. So there's the education part, but of course education is necessary, but not sufficient. It's not sufficient because we need to take this learning and put it into action. So our second area of focus is action and we have a number of different campaigns under the action umbrella one is closing foreign military bases where there's many around the world still um, nearly all of them are u.s bases in different countries and we think that that is propping up the war system and we think that foreign military bases don't need to be there so that's one area that we work on one campaign another campaign is divestment so how can we go about moving money away from the huge gigantic war system towards more productive activities such as education health covid mitigation among others let's as frankly we put it that we need two trillion dollars on other things right now and actually always so um that's another area of our work so hopefully that gives a little bit of a perspective on on, on the work that we do okay so let's talk about the goals of world beyond war in general Stephen pinker in his book bitter angels of our nature 
documents the fact that the world is gradually but surely becoming more peaceful with a diminished number of people dying at the hands of humans. Armed conflict, location, and even event data in their article, quote, current data files retrieved April 10th, 2019, list three major conflicts that have caused more than 10,000 deaths per year in 2019 and 2018. 14 conflicts caused between 1,000 and 10,000 deaths in 2019 and 2018, and 29 minor conflicts that caused between 100 to 1,000 deaths per year during the same period. These numbers are disturbing, but they are dwarfed by the some 38 million that died in World War I, the 75 million that died in World War II. Almost 2 million died in the Korean War. So an article penned by Obermeyer, Ziad, Murray, Christopher, J.L. Gatsdu, Emmanuel, 2018, entitled, quote, 50 Years of Violent War Deaths from Vietnam to Bosnia, Analysis of Data from the World Health Survey Program, end quote, and published in the British Journal of Medicine, documents almost 4 million deaths as a result of the Vietnam War. According to these historians, compared to the 20th century, the human race is making progress in terms of diminishing war and diminishing deaths as a result of war, at least compared to the casualties suffered thus far still early in the 21st century. Does the fact that diminished casualties in the 21st century and Pinker's book give us reason to hope that it is possible to create a more peaceful world? If so, how long is it going to take? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And of course, you know, um, Dr. Pinker's work and, and others such as uh, Joshua Goldstein and others have, have all made the case that, well, whilst Pinker's thesis is, you know, looking at the decline of violence uh, in a longitudinal way. So across time, Joshua Goldstein looks at the idea of we're winning the war on war. There's been a decline in terms of armed conflict. So on one hand, data suggests that, yes, we do have quite a positive picture. That's on one hand. It also it also depends, though, on how do we go about defining our terms? How are we defining peace? How are we defining war? You've mentioned one there, Uppsala, in terms of the way in which they define um, armed conflict. How are we defining violence? So it might be the case, it might be the case, although this is you know, being critiqued as well, it might be the case that we've had a decline in terms of direct violence around the world in terms of dropping bombs and, and things like this, people dying and things like this. It might be the case, although there is um, some research to kind of critique that because, yes, the, the research that Pinker, you know, states is, is obviously worth looking at and should focus our attention. On the other hand, we've made other progresses. For example, we've made massive progresses in terms of health. So we're getting better now. It's, you know, people are surviving more because we're better in terms of health and looking after them. There's another uh, article Called, called Dead Wrong, which um, actually critiques Pinker's thesis. So if people are interested, they can look at that in terms of, um, yeah, I mean, it quite says it in the title, Dead Wrong, and in terms of the, the counts. But I think another thing is to, to think about is violence in its broadest sense. So you hear, you look at solutions to violence. So it might be worth defining what we mean by violence. So Johan Galton, the father of peace studies, lays out, I think, a useful way of thinking about violence, direct, structural, cultural. So direct would be largely linked to stopping the bombs being dropped and, and stopping people from being killed directly. 
as well as psychological violence. But the bigger issue here, I think, which probably does not receive as much attention, is structural violence and cultural violence. Structural violence refers to the policies and procedures that are put in place to privilege one group over another. And examples of structural violence would be hunger, would be poverty. You know, poverty is at the core of the world's sustainable development goals. Um, and another form of violence would be cultural violence. So this would be the, fasc the isms, the fascism, sexism, etc the attitudes. And it could be argued that there's a link between the three forms of violence, often starting with, but not always, often starting with cultural violence leading to structural violence. And then we see it visibly through, through direct violence. So I think it depends on how we're defining things. If you look at other research, take, for example, the Institute for Economics and Peace, along with other people, the Alliance for Peacebuilding and things like this, there's research uh, to suggest that we're now in a 30-year high in terms of direct violence and armed conflict around the world. So, so at no point in the last 30 years have we had more violence and conflict than right now. So yes, in terms of Pinker's massive analysis, for, in terms of you know society, there could be um, arguments to say that we've made progress. On the other hand, you know we're living in the here and now and we need to take into account uh, the dynamics that, that we're facing now. There's no doubt that the, the, the dynamic in terms of conflict, peace building, violence prevention work have changed since World War I and World War II. We have things like, you know, cyber violence and, and issues that we need to take into account, AI for war, for peace, for violence and things like this. So I think that it's a very complex answer. So on one hand, I think there is perhaps data to suggest positive um, kind of trends. But on the other hand, I think we need to think critically about it. Dr. Yetting, World Beyond War makes a, a, a larger part of its focus on peace education. What, what makes it so important to have peace education? Mm. Well, that's a great question. Thank you for that question. I think if, um, in brief terms, if we want to have peace, we need to teach about peace. If people want to, I think of it, you know, think of this as uh, one way of thinking about it. What do sports people, architects, builders, lawyers, uh, engineers all have in common? Well, some, you know, I often do this in trainings and people will say, oh, they, you know, they work in a team and they're, they're goal focused and things like this. Yes, that's true. Another, another thing which is true is that, that, all, that they also focus on their trade. Um, they study what they're doing. They try and put into practice what they're learning. We need the same thing in terms of peace building, in terms of peace work. All countries around the world, bar none, I would say, speak about peace. All religions around the world, all espouse their own versions of peace. Um, well, if that's the case, then why aren't we teaching about it? Because when you look at in schools and universities around the world, particularly schools, there is very few, Columbia being one example, very few that have a focus on peace education mainstreamed, you know, within their curriculum as a standard kind of practice. So I think um, peace education is very, very important because it can help us learn, develop, question alternatives. You know, it can help us think through, OK, rather than responding to conflict in violent means, how can we go about responding to conflict? through peaceful means. One of the things that we know is that 
conflict is part of everyday life. Every single person on the planet will be involved with conflict, whether that be conflict with yourself, with others, you know, friends, family, communities, countries, etc. So if that's the case, then people really need to learn the skills, tools, and techniques to try and deal with conflicts uh, more importantly. So if that's the case, then there's a role for peace education in terms of helping to promote these values of cooperation, collaboration, working together, non-violence, etc. So there's one answer in terms of why peace education is important. The World Beyond War does sponsor an online course in terms of education called War and the Environment. It sounds intriguing because the mainline news shows a lot of destruction around the world, cities, homes, infrastructure, causes of death in so many parts of the world. But it rarely focuses on the environmental consequences of war. What does war contribute to climate change? Would you give us a premise of the the course yeah yeah by all means so so we'll be on well we actually run several courses we run four this year one of is called war in the environment which i'll come back to shortly but some of the other courses that we've run is called war abolition 101 war abolition 201 and leaving world war two behind war in the environment is really developed and created with this idea of how can we bring the peace movement and the climate change movement together to make each other stronger. When we think of some of the existential threats that we're facing right now, let's say two of them, nuclear weapons and climate change, you know, the climate crisis, both have clear links to the war system and war. The link with nuclear weapons is very clear. I don't think I need to say more about that. But the link to climate crisis is not as clear or people don't realize it as much. So take, for example, one example, the biggest user of fossil fuels and the biggest polluter on the planet is the military and particularly the US military. So if we want to make progress in terms of the climate crisis, then we have to look at the role of militarism. Now, there's a lot of great organizations that are doing work on this, but I think a lot more can be done to bring the two movements together to kind of, you know, uh, strengthen both movements. The courses that we do are usually six weeks. Um, and what they do is that they, they're online, so people access them from wherever they, wherever they want to in the world. Uh, we tend to have between at least 100 on our courses. The last one, War in the Environment, that we run, we had 150. Uh, the youngest that we know on our courses is 13. The oldest that I know of is 94. So we have a really great kind of intergenerational kind of collaboration going on. Um, the courses provide lots of materials, resources, information, supported heavily by evidence. But what they also do is that they provide kind of a learning laboratory and a space where, you know, people from the US, Bangladesh, Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, South Sudan, etc., can all engage together online in issues related to um, important topics such as uh, the role of war in contributing to climate change and the role of climate change in terms of contributing to war. So there's kind of a, you know, an intersection between the two. Well, that's an interesting uh, question, how the environment impacts war. Maybe we can get to that at some point, but, uh, and you've answered some of the questions. What are some of the outcomes that you see from uh, this course? Some of the outcomes, well, our, our course isn't first and foremost focused on educa an educational focus um, in terms of trying to raise awareness about some of the myths, about some of the ideas, strategies, frameworks, tools, techniques of moving us away from the war machine to a peace system. So they have an educational focus. Having said that, five and six, and in particularly week six, thinks about how can we try about 
thinking about using this learning to engage in action. So, of course, we have no say of what people do after they leave the course. But the idea is to try and help them think through of how can they use some of their learnings from the course to kind of engage in action. One program that I think we will speak about maybe later or now is called Peace Education and Action. Peace Education and Action for Impact. And the whole idea, part of the idea of this program was to engage in both education and action all in one program so that we can physically see the direct impact. So I'm happy to talk about that later. The online courses, that is up to each of the participants from all around the world in terms of what they choose to do with it. But what we can say based on um, we do research and monitoring and evaluation is that people learn a lot um, they, t they sometimes, uh, quite often, get very shocked in terms of, oh my gosh, I did not realize that. I did not realize this. And we ask them questions around, how was this learning significant for you and for others that you work with? And what, what do you want to do with this learning moving forward? But again, we cannot control what they do, you know, moving forward after that. Phil, why does this program focus on you? Mm -hmm. The Peace Education Action for Impact program is focused on youth, but it also engages different generations. So maybe I can say something about that. Peace Education Action for Impact is a developmental program which involves at least six weeks of peace education online. And this is called part one, which covers what we call the knowing, being and doing of peace building. If you look at peace work around the world, too much focus is on the head, the theories, the concepts, the ideas, which are necessary but not sufficient. So what we do is have two weeks looking at the head uh, in terms of concepts, what is peace, what is violence, what is power, what is conflict. And then after that, we have two weeks of the heart, which looks at ideas of um, how do we be in peace with ourselves, which is week three, and how do we be in peace with others, which is week four. So looking at non issues of nonviolent communication and active listening, dialogue, self-awareness, reflective practice. And then week five and six looks at how do we design, implement and evaluate a project. So that's part one. Then part two moves through to the action part, which is where people design, implement and evaluate projects. So we did a pilot last year, Peace Education Action for Impact, with young people and communities in 12 different countries across four, four regions, four continents. Here we go, we had from Africa, Cameroon, Kenya, Nigeria, and South Sudan. In Europe, we had Ukraine, Russia team, very interesting, Serbia, and Turkey. In the Americas, we had US, Canada, Colombia, and Venezuela. From our knowledge, it's the first time this has ever happened in the whole of the peace building field, bringing all these people together to engage in a developmental process of peace education and action and mentoring. Project in terms of impacts, going back to your question uh, before, trained 160 young people and adults in these 12 countries I mean, issues related to peace, conflict, war prevention, etc. But it also mentored the young people to do projects and the projects were youth led, but also guided by adults. And each of the projects were context specific. So, for example, in Cameroon, they looked at issues related to youth exclusion and address that issue by engaging communities and doing capacity building. They actually got a letter from the ministry um, congratulating them on the work. Another good project, Nigeria, addressed the issue of kidnapping and actually, which is a big issue in, in Nigeria, and actually brought police officers, community members, young people together and produced a policy brief based on the research that they did. Uh, another project, the US did a great project. They actually combined science and arts and actually put together um, a wonderful album called Peace Accords. <laughs> 
uh, which, which actually drew from what they learnt on the course, so issues related to inner piece, outer piece, etc., and used their artistic abilities. Um, another project, actually in Colombia, their team of 10 young people were from nine different departments across the country, so they did a whole host of different projects in nine different departments, including environmental work, among other things. Venezuela did a project around listening because they saw that the people were in conflict and weren't able to listen, have dialogue. So that gives you some kind of examples. Going back to your question of why youth? Well, uh, many, many years ago, Gandhi said, if we want real peace in the world, we, sh we have to start with, you know, children and youth. That, that has always been the case philosophically. But now there's a more even um, uh, pragmatic and ethical reason. We now have more young people on the planet than ever before in the whole of history. If we're not engaging young people in how to promote peace, then the chances are maybe, likely, possibly, they, they might not be learning the skills to work for peace and therefore might go the opposite direction. So we have an ethical obligation to kind of engage young people. But also research shows that young people are a lot more creative, sorry, than, than older people. Research shows this, you know, they're, they're resilient, uh, they're open to change a lot more, etc. Of course, the, you know, there's generalizations here, but research suggests this. So we need to be really working with young people. But in no way, no way, and I want this to be, uh, I actually wrote something about this uh, recently, about the importance of, we need all generations. Young generations can learn from older generations. Older generations can learn from younger generations. And um, so what we really need to do is bring intergenerational collectives together. So bring younger people with not so young people, with older people together to engage. So what we did in the Peace Education and Action for Impact project is that we had young people at the center. Those were the young people leading the projects. But they were actually guided by trained adults and mentors. So um, that hopefully gives a bit of perspective. And uh, my wonderful colleague, Alison's just joined us here. <laughs> Hello, I'm sorry I'm late. How are you? Time, time zone problems. Beg your pardon. <laughs> no Welcome. worry. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, you're highly involved in the Rotary International, the other organization coordinating with World Beyond War. Many in our audience may have heard of Rotary International, but uh, may not know much about it. Could you give us a little information about it on the World Beyond War Peace Education and Action for Impact project? Thank you. Well, the Rotary International is over 130 years old. It operates in over 200 countries. It was actually a part of the setting up of the UN. We had 49 members there and we were also responsible for the development of the universal human rights because we agreed that at a convention and then the UN took it up. But it's also considered one of the five best charities worldwide. We have around 1.3 million members, but we're all brought together by something called the four-way test. Is it the truth? Is it fair to all concerned? Will it build better friendships and will it be mutually beneficial? That's what binds us together. And then each club is autonomous and we have districts around the world. And it's those districts that often decide what kind of peace work they want to be doing. But our seven areas of focus has environment is the latest one to be added and peace is the prominent one. So I belong to the Rotary Action Group for Peace, which represents that area of focus. And our job is to educate, empower and engage Rotarians worldwide to become involved in peace. 
In some ways, for some years, it seemed a difficult task because peace seemed a little intangible. But these days, it's so much easier because there's an element of peace in everything that a Rotary Club does. So we are able to unpack that and unpack it in line with development goals and eight pillars of peace and so on. So Rotary has been voted, as I said, one of the fifth best charities in the world because of its good governance and the fact that we take such care with the monies that we're given. No Rotarian gets paid for any service. Every penny that comes in goes out. And so it's wonderful to actually partner with um, World Beyond War and to link up our Rotarians who can assist in the rolling out of this program. Yeah, thank you for that. We know that you're working out of Wales, is this correct? Yes, um, it is. There's another piece that we'd like to talk about, and that's called Peace Jam. It's a U.S. charity. Yes, yes. Uh, I represent yes. Peace Jam in Wales, actually. Tell us about it. <laughs> Um, well, Peace Jam was set up in the 60s in Colorado by a couple in response to the gangs and the knife wars. And it's grown. And Ivan had this idea of approaching Nobel Peace Laureates. And he started with the Dalai Lama. And he was actually successful in going across to see him. And the Dalai Lama said, well, if you get other peace fellows and Nobel Peace Laureates, I'll come on board. And so I've been with Peace Jam around seven years or so. And they have around 14, 15 Nobel Peace Laureates. They're all of them doing legacy films now because they're aging. Although we've had some new ones recently, Malala being one. And it's those Nobel Laureates who actually share their passion. So we have seven curriculum. One of them is called Compassion. And that's very much got the uh, handprint of the Dalai Lama in that, in terms of what the way that he lives his life. So these curricula suitable from small children and beyond. And in fact, I've been piloting something in Wales that's not been done at this side of the pond, which is working in prisons. And I've been using something called the Juvenile Programme, which we changed to the You Can Change Programme. And it's about changing behaviour. And it's run over three days. I work with prisoners of all ages, up to 75 years old, from 18 to 75. I don't know what they're in for. I've had murderers, drug pushers, etc. But uh, we've had 100% success over the three days in the years that we've been running this in as much as we've seen changed behavior, restored relationships with family, better relationships with prison guards, accessing education, turning one or two, turning away from drug dealing and recognizing that isn't what their wives want. They don't want the big posh house and the designer clothes. They want the husband living at home, not in a prison facility. So I can't speak highly enough of Peace Jam. It's an amazing program. It's designed very much around getting it into schools. It would be wonderful if we could have it as part of the curriculum in many schools in the UK under perhaps religious education or well-being, global citizenship. It sits there well. And the wonderful thing, it doesn't actually teach at. It's a facilitation method. So it's a way of getting them to think for themselves. And the thing I liked with the prisoners was when the, the light bulb moment and they thought, oh, yes, I'm responsible for that. Yeah, well, maybe I shouldn't do that. So it's about them coming to a realization of what their thoughts are, what their behavior is, and making changes for themselves. 
Well, you mentioned that there are a number of countries that are involved, like Etria, Libya, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Uganda. What does it mean for these other countries? Or give us an example of what, what some of the, the meaning has become for uh, folks in another country. Well, one of the things that you have to think about when you do any curriculum is sometimes you have to change the name of the program. So, in fact, we had somebody from China who wanted to take it back. And we said, well, you can't call it peace as such. So we said, call it good citizenship. I think the thing with all of our programs, be it Peace Jam with uh, Peace Education, we have to have the ability to tweak it to a particular country of the world to find out um, if certain phrases that we use or things that we consider to be the norm are acceptable there. And if not, to have the flexibility to reword it, not to water it down, not to change it, but to address it differently. And I think this is particularly important in specific places. And we've noticed that when dealing in Turkey, for instance, in, a, in another program, we were working on diversity, equity and inclusion, and they have no word for equity. So we had to find ways of unpacking that. And I think even Phil on the Peace Education and Action for Impact, as we prepared that program, we had many discussions on some of the aspects on how to unpack things so that they were acceptable in the areas and the countries where they were being delivered. Oh, thank you for that. So let's get specific, folks, in terms of war that's now currently going on. So currently, the mainland news brings Ukraine-Russian conflict into our living rooms just about every night. We see the deaths and destruction caused by this conflict, as well as the targeting of civilians and the threat of a nuclear response on the part of Vladimir Putin and the Russian government. However, international journalists like Andrew Basevich, Anatole Levitt, who both been on uh, Solutions Violence, as well as Chris Hedges, Peter Kinzig, and others have called for President Biden and the NATO leadership to honor some of Putin's demands. Putin has for decades asked the U.S. and NATO alliance to pull back some of the military installations and the U.S. nuclear installations that have for decades surrounded Russia. Putin has also asked Ukraine not to be allowed to join NATO, a military alliance that was created to protect European allies against Soviet military aggression. But the Soviet Union no longer exists. Biden and NATO have refused to give in to these demands. Levin and others still believe that a negotiated settlement between the U.S., Ukraine and NATO leadership is the only way to end this Russian-Ukrainian war. What's your take on this horrific conflict? What does World Beyond War say about negotiations? And what are your strategies for ending the conflict? Mm. Okay. Okay. So that's a big one. And, and to, to, um, to provide some context, in no way can we class ourselves as experts in Ukraine or Russia. You know, they are the experts that speaks for themselves on the ground. We actually have one of our board members, um, Yuri, who's actually the general secretary of the pacifist movement in Ukraine. And he speaks with great authority, um, much more authoritative than me on this subject. Having said that, there are some things. One is that I agree totally with what Alan was saying about language. And I wanted to go back to that because when you were sharing there, Jim, you spoke about NATO and you used the idea of NATO was set up to, you know, protect security and things like this, you know. Well, that might be the case, you know, and people might believe that. We, we take a different stance. We see NATO, well, actually evidence shows that NATO is a military armed nuclear kind of apparatus, which is, in our opinion, and of course, is our opinion, propping up the war system. So there's, there's one 
thing with regards to language. With regards to Ukraine and Russia, a couple of things. One is that we need to remember that there's other wars around the world. Ukraine, Russia should focus our attention, and so should others as well. There's many wars going on around the world which should also focus our attention, but they're not. So here's a couple of, the, uh, to the extent that Ukraine and Russia is. And then that raises the question, well, why is that? Is it because it's in Europe and because it's closer to home? So there's one thing. Another thing we would say is that we're against all wars. We're against all violence. And that includes on both sides, from both Russia and Ukraine. We talk about and advocate for the utility of nonviolence because it works. There's, there's a lot of evidence to show that non-violence works. Um, take uh, Erica Schenewerfs and, and her colleagues' um, work on, on why civil resistance works, which I'm sure you're aware of in terms of you know, solutions to violence, which I don't need to speak about. So we speak a lot about that. Yuri in particular has spoke a lot about, uh, which is quite controversial and, and goes against the grain and in contrast to a lot of the discourse right now, is he's saying, the West stops sending us weapons. What we need right now is is to think about you know the the utility of of, of nonviolence. Um, there's actually research as well, which I was looking at the other day, which shows that that most kind most kind of armed conflicts and and military engagements like this they would they will end. They will end. You know, most of them. Uh, so research shows, and about seventy five percent of of wars and armed conflicts like this. Um, over the last 35 years have ended through a peace agreement. Only 16% of them have ended through military victory. So at the, at the core of this, and you actually said it in your, in your question, is that what do we do? We advocate for nonviolence, we advocate for dialogue, you know, which, which is not happening. And, and of course, Biden, you know, in the US, they do have a role to play. They can advocate for dialogue, you know, and at the, the end of the day, it's up to Ukraine and Russia, you know, as sovereign kind of states to, to work this through with the support if we can help. But at the end of the day, the experts in their context are uh, Ukraine um, and Russia. And I think it's quite dangerous to, which I've seen um, a lot of talk about calling Putin crazy and, and you know, and he's not. He's very strategic. There's, there's a long legacy. In no way whatsoever are we justifying, you know, what's happening in terms of the violence. But there's legacy to this. And people need to think about that legacy that goes back a lot further than, than this year, a lot further than, you know, a few years back in terms of what happened. There's a long legacy that goes back way before, you know, the, the, the Cold War and things like this. So there's part of an answer. I don't know, Alison, what would you add? I think this also underlines the unusual relationship between Rotary International and World Beyond War. In as much as Bill is at liberty to explain all of that, Rotary is a-religious, a-political, a-socioeconomic. So we actually do not look at the question that you've posed. We look more at the presenting issue from a humanitarian viewpoint. So we're responding to Ukraine from a humanitarian angle. We equally will respond to Russia from that same angle if we identify a need and we're able to, to meet that need. So that's the difference. So, and again, in, in all of the work that I do for Rotary, I don't comment on the situation, on whether a refugee asylum seeker should be coming into the country, a prisoner should be sentenced. I deal with the issue of the fact they're here and this is what we can give to them and the rest we leave to other bodies. Uh, one more question on the Ukraine-Russia situation. You talked about dialogue, Bill. An international journal, The Responsible Statescraft, published an article by Connor Eccles. Quote, Diplomacy Watch, is AMLO's peace plan really that ridiculous? End quote. 
Echols explains that Mexican President Andreas Manuel Lopez Orbedo in a United Nations conference proposed that a, quote, a commission for dialogue and peace be formed that would seek an immediate cessation of hostilities in, quote, in Ukraine. Obrado suggested that U.N. Secretary Antonio Gutierrez, Pope Francis, Indian Prime Minister Nereli Modi, lead the peace commission. Any chance such a peace commission could help Russia and Ukraine reach a settlement that would lead to a cessation of hostilities? What can world beyond war do to spread the message that negotiations should be continued? I think that things that we're doing, but it takes a massive effort, you know, in terms of, again, talking about the importance of, of dialogue in, t- in terms of speaking about the utility of nonviolence, um, speaking about, you know, us and the partners that we work with all around the world are against all wars. And, and you know, and really want to congratulate Rotary Action Group for Peace as well for coming out and saying that as well, that we're against all wars, not, not just, you know, the Ukraine-Russia war. Um, These are messages that really need to be heard right now. Other messages that aren't heard right now as much is those on the ground in Russia and Ukraine, which have massive courage, loads more than us speaking at our desk here, you know, that are out on the streets advocating for peace and nonviolence. These are the stories that should be told as well. So those are some of the things that we we have petitions and things like this. I think something interesting on that, Phil, is why didn't you speak about the joint team last year, Russia and Ukraine? Mm. Yeah, and in the um, in the Peace Education Action for Impact, the Rotary Action for Peace and World War More worked on, we, we had several teams, 12 teams that we spoke about earlier, but we had a um, Ukraine and Russia joint team. Uh, part of the idea for that joint team was to build bridges, to have dialogue, to educate people around issues. But what, what they actually ended up doing, um, and, and of course, all of the, the great work that happened only happened because of the great people on the ground that did the work. The Ukraine and the Russia team, their project was around educating each other around peace issues. So, for example, Ukraine team, which was made up of five young people, educated, worked with and raised awareness about issues related to peace and conflict with young people in schools in Russia and the Russia team did the same, vice versa. So that is one good way. Some of the issues around the world with regards to conflict, violence and war is this idea of othering, you know, and ignorance. So what we need to try and do is kind of create spaces for bringing people together to have these difficult kind of conversations and with the idea of cultivating relationships. Because when you can cultivate relationships, you don't see others as others. You see see them as that's a human being just like me. You know, we're very, very different. And at the same time, we have many, many things in common. We're human beings on the planet. And I think what's important, too, is that from our perspective of the Rotary Action Group, these two, uh, Russia and Ukraine, we had a young lady from Russia and a young lady from Ukraine meet up with us in Houston in June, and they were friends. But that friendship is lying dormant due to the difficulties at the present time. But we're relying in the future on the unity of Rotarians to again build bridges with Russia and Ukraine and other neighboring countries as soon as that opportunity opportunity presents itself. So that's an advantage we have because first and foremost, we're Rotarians and we set aside our political viewpoints. Let me push back a little bit on the fact that, or the point that you're making about there are more wars other than just Ukraine in, in the world, and there are more military conflicts. It's a large concept to take in. And where does one start just to deal with that sort of thing? I mean, Ukraine is in everybody's mind right now, but there are a lot, like you say, around the world. Where do we start? 
Yeah, that, that's a really good question. You know, where do we start? And, and a lot of people always ask us that as well in terms of World Beyond War, where do you start? And we have a book which is called The Global Security System, which lays out, you know, a blueprint for ending war and establishing a just and sustainable peace, which revolves around three broad strategies, demilitarizing security, managing conflict without violence and a culture of peace, which all have their own kind of strategies linked to it. And people often ask, well, where do we start? One place to start is that we can all turn the mirror inwards and ask ourselves what makes us feel safe and secure, you know? And part of the answer to that is that when we're investing two trillion, which is what the research shows in terms of preparing for war and a, and a tiny amount in terms of preparing for peace, um, that suggests that that's, it's not going to make us feel more safe. And we make an argument in the book that, that um, the huge investment, although it's done under the, the guise of making us feel safer, actually makes us less safe. So the question around where do we start is a good one. And, and of course, I, you know, I said the point about, because I look at it different ways. Of course, there's Ukraine, Russia, which should focus our attention, you know, 100%. But other wars should also focus our attention. On the other hand, the history tells us that wars in Europe from World War One, World War Two have a tendency to be globalized. You know, so perhaps that is, you know, part of the reason why the focus should be put on Ukraine and Russia. But each day, you know, and I'm sure Alison's the same, we're on conversation, we're on calls with people, Nigeria, Ethiopia, you know, Afghanistan, who are telling us, you know, uh, and this is not our words, this is theirs, what's happening right now is racism, that's, the, that's their words, I, I'm not speaking for them, it's, I've physically heard that quite a few times, people telling me that. One of the other things that we try and do as well, and I think this is perhaps at the core of some of the things that we, that we should do if we're interested in kind of opposing war and promoting peace, is that not think of war as something far away and poor people in the global south think of something that implicates us you know so when the uk government for example i speak myself you know spends a lot of money in a particular area it means that it diverts the attention away from you know perhaps more productive activities such as education health covid mitigation so it does it does affect us but not perhaps in the immediate way that ethiopia and nigeria and others you know so I think it's a great question. I don't know, Alison, what would, what would you say to that? I, I think there are many conflict zones in the world which are not escalated to out-and-out war, as we call it. And I think one of the challenges for us within Rotary again is education and to educate around the eight pillars of peace, free flow of information, low levels of corruption, education uh, per capita, etc. If we could ensure those things, then the causes for that conflict and frustrations would then cease to exist. And so it's, it's a long-term thing, but we're very much about prevention. And I think for us, that starts from the cradle, literally from the cradle to the grave. And if you think about it, many of the um, conflicts, etc., come because individuals have taken on the baggage of someone else. Young people often carry the baggage of their parents. So we need young, to teach young people to think for themselves, to research things for themselves and to make decisions for themselves because they have a far greater capacity than we give them credit for. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And if, if we take your kind of definition that you shared earlier in terms of how you define war and armed conflict, research suggests there's about 40 ongoing wars and conflicts right now. You know, I'm very sure that I could not name all of them either, you know, and, and many people listening would not perhaps be able to, to, to name them either. But you've, of course, you've got Yemen, Mexico, Afghanistan, you know, among others, in addition to Ukraine and Russia. So we're, we're kind of getting to the point where we weren't before the conflict. There are things we can do when the conflict is going on, but to deal with the conflict before it becomes war. In other words, education, as you were saying, Alison. I don't know if that was for, for Alison, but I think that really is at the core of the challenge that the peace buildings field is facing. We need to get so much better at a preventative approach than a curative approach. Think about it. You know, you go in there, you build wells, you do education, you build a, you know, build a building, etc. And then two seconds later, a bomb will come along and destroy that within seconds. So we need to get so much better. And I myself have changed my way of thinking about this over the years. I used to think that there's something called negative and positive peace, which actually both are needed. There's nothing negative about negative peace. There's nothing negative about stopping violence. You know, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. It's necessary in the sense that. Um, we need to stop the killing from happening and the bombs from being dropped. But that's not to say that's the end of the work, you know. World Beyond War, it's called World Beyond War, and people think, oh, you're just against war. No, we're 100% for peace. We just see that war and the institution of war is the biggest challenge to getting towards a sustainable peace. And sustainable peace is the idea of positive peace in the sense that it removes barriers, conditions, which are likely to, to move back into conditions of violence and conditions of war. So so of course, that means looking at peace in a relational way in terms of conflict, violence, war, etc. The more I think about it, and the more I read, I'm getting even more convinced that we need to put much more attention in terms of stopping the violence in the first place. I don't know, Alison, what would you say? Well, I have to confess at this point, I'm not an academic like Phil, but you've already worked that out. But I think another factor in this is that I was brought up where nationalism was good. So you're so proud of your country and so on. But I live in the United Kingdom where we have four countries, England, Wales, Scotland and Ireland. And I reside in Wales, except I'm English. My husband was Scottish. You put on a football match and the other three countries, Wales, Scotland and Ireland, will want anyone to win other than England. And that nationalism just feeds other problems as well. And I think for many of us, it's actually unlearning some of what we've grown up with and reappraising mm. whether it's still the right thing. It might have been fine at the time, but just have mm. the courage to recognize we need to lay it aside and what is it that we should be doing for the greater good? And if you take nationalism to its extent, it creates conflict in itself. Yeah, we have here in America our own brand of American exceptionalism based on religious mythology, by the way, but it has a heavy impact on the thinking of most Americans. So yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Okay, we have just a little time left, Bill and Allison. We'd like to dig a little deeper in terms of your personal projects. Bolivia, Phil, and East Africa. Allison, would you like to give us a little information about what you're doing there and the successes you've had? So projects in Bolivia. Well, a couple of reasons that, that brings us to, you know, to Bolivia. One is that uh, family, so my wife, is, is here. But we've been here on and off in Bolivia, probably spent uh, more than four or five years in the last 10 years. 
and it was a strategic reason that uh, linked to PhD work and, and, and other work that I did here at Simmons Allison. I worked in prisons here in Bolivia as well, doing a number of different things. But um, I made the decision, we cannot be all things to all people. You know, we have to make a decision, where do we want to focus our attention? And uh, there's a lack of attention, I think, you know, in Latin America in comparison to other movements around the world in terms of peace building. But it's interesting that Latin America, probably the 50 most dangerous cities around the world, has about 40 of them. And it doesn't get as much funding from Divid and, and other agencies. So I made a decision to kind of focus on Latin America and in particular Bolivia, which is often overlooked, but a very interesting place in terms of peace building. So we've done a number of things over, over the years. We wrote a book peace and conflict in Bolivia, trained many of the university students here and professors here. Now we're working on two projects maybe three. One project is with the Catholic University here, which has five sites around the country. I've trained them and I helped put together a Masters in Peace, Human Rights and Democracy, probably about four or five years ago. And then it went kind of quiet. Now that we're back, we're working on this project uh, around a culture of peace, which will be training their professors, administration and students around issues of the culture of peace in the five sites, the big ambitious plan across the country, starting in La Paz. La Paz in Spanish is the peace. And we hope to be starting before the end of this year with a cohort of 100 professors, students and administration training them around issues of a culture of peace, which in its broadest sense, yeah, Alison and, well, and others will be broadly revolving around the six weeks, the peace education action for impact, the head, the heart, the hands, basically drawing from, you know, the work of World Beyond War. That's one project. Another project is a, um, a great organization here, which is the organization I wrote the book for called Conrad Adenauer. It's a German foundation or about 120 countries. They're very good at democracy and things like this. They want to do something on leadership, but they also wanted to link it to peace building. And I said, well, okay, let's get our heads together. And the course, I'm still thinking it through, might be called something like sustainable peace leadership. And we will try and do that with um, what they call very at risk youth here. So those are two things in, in Bolivia. There's, there's various others, but those are two things. My work for East Africa is actually in my past. That was very much around HIV AIDS and Uganda, Tanzania, Rwanda, Burundi, Congo, and some in India. But what I took away with me from that was the huge stigma and discrimination, which often prevented people from going to get the help they needed and certainly early enough. So that sort of fires me. So currently now here in Wales, in addition to my personal work, here with refugees and people seek well people seeking sanctuary prisoners and so on. I work for the Rotary Action Group for Peace via Zoom globally, and we've been doing much to try to educate Rotarians around the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And considering you know that we've delivered that in places in Africa, we've delivered it in India. So it's going to places where it's quite a thorny topic. We're also delivering nonviolent communication, and we're shortly delivering a program on domestic abuse. So what we're trying to do is to challenge the behaviours of Rotarians and non-Rotarians and get them to be just more self-aware so that we can actually prevent some of the problems which come as a result of, of that behavioural problem. And I'm particularly targeting, I think, difficult places in the world. But I think one of the things that I'm particularly excited about is that we have links with Iraq. 
And we're hoping to put in a RAT team through the Peace Education and Action for Impact program this year. But we have links for the Rotarian, Harim Waspi, who's a cellist and an international conductor. And he set up a community orchestras in Iraq. If you go on any one day to Mosul or Baghdad, you'll find at least 10 orchestras playing in the streets. He's taken youth from all ethnicities and ages, taught them to play music. And he's even actually 14 militiamen laid down their weapons and decided that they'd rather take up musical instruments than weapons. And as a result of that, we've built a relationship. We've been able to put on fundraising concerts for him, etc. And Iraq, because of the troubles, the Rotary Club sort of died away. Well, we're going to open a new Rotary Club and it's going to be an e-club and it's going to be Iraq with Wales. And we've got 20 odd people coming in from Iraq and several people coming from other countries. So for me, it's exciting because I see my country as part of of the destruction of that country. And now I have a chance to be part of the reparation. And so we we work um, much to bring peace through music. And that's what we're achieving in places like Iraq. Alice and Phil, we are, we're coming to the end of our time here today. Would you have some last words to share with our listeners? And I will share first, peace starts with you. It starts with me. Okay, how do I follow that? Thank you. Just th thank you so much for, for the invitation. Uh, we're all doing the best that we can do. Uh, we just need more peace builders uh, around the world. Um, and in order to have more peace builders around the world, we need great organizations and groups like Rotary Action Group for Peace and others. So just uh, thank you to, to you all for, for what you're doing. And thank you so much for the invitation. All right. So to our listeners, we are fortunately out of time here on Solutions to Balance with our conversation today. Our guest has been Alison Sellerland and Phil Giddens of the National Organization World Beyond War and Rotarians for Peace. Our program will be repeated Tuesday, November 1st at 8 a.m., Wednesday, November 2nd at 6 a.m. You can listen live stream by visiting our website at forwardradio.org and clicking on Listen Live Mail. We will place the Solution to Balance program featuring Allison Sutherland and Phil Giddens in our archives on Wednesday, November 2nd. To listen to our program via our archives, go to Forward Radio, choose program program archives and scroll down to the Solutions to Balance program that features Bill Giddens and Allison Sutherland. For more information and a scheduling of program that will inspire and challenge you, visit us at forwardradio.org and click on broadcast schedule. We are your hosts, Jamie McMillan and Jim Johnson, bringing you more discoveries of Solutions to Balance. Thanks for listening.